0: The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, well, let's um, take our Bibles and uh, turn to the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Important chapter, difficult chapter. We're going to start reading at verse 3. Paul says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying, disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off, but if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man." For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have literally just authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her? For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. So, this, uh, this passage is um, notoriously difficult, and for obvious reasons, and so last week, all we looked at was actually just verse 3, and just want to very briefly review what we said, because verse 3 is so foundational for what Paul says in the remainder of the passage. So Paul says in verse 3, so I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, I pointed out last week, and we're not going to go back and revisit all the evidence, but I pointed out that the word head, the word kephale. In the Greek text, has the idea of of authority. And you see that in other passages where Paul uses the term. Most particularly, probably the closest parallel ends up being Ephesians 5 um, 22 and following, where it talks about uh, that the husband is the head of the wife just as Christ is the head of the church. And just as the church is in submission to Christ, a woman is to be in submission to her husband. And so when we think about what Paul's saying, and he's talking there then about authority, so you have a hierarchy of authority. And so Paul clearly says Christ is the head. Christ is in authority over the man. The man is in authority over the woman. And then he closes and says, and God is the authority over Christ. Now, the authority, and this is, this is vitally important, um, people that don't like the view that I'm presenting and that I hold to will often misrepresent this very, this very point, all right? The authority that we're talking about is not ontological, it's functional. So, when we say the authority is not ontological, what we mean is that God the Father is not superior to Christ in essence. Christ and the Father are co-equal. In other words, the Father is not more God than the Son. The Father and the Son are equally God. They equally share the divine essence. So when we when we talk about um, the ontology or that's that which is ontological, we're talking about that which is essential, that which is of the essence. Okay? So there is no hierarchy. In terms of the Father being um, superior or more God than the Son, the Father and the Son are equal. So equality in the Godhead. But when Paul says that God is the head of Christ, of course Christ is probably reference to Messiah, right? That's what Christ means, Messiah, and that underscores Jesus' redemptive role. So. If you've ever read the Gospel of John, you actually see that Jesus is in total submission to the Father. In fact, repeatedly says that he is in submission to the Father. I didn't come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I don't speak anything on my own initiative. I only speak what the Father tells me to speak, right? I do nothing of my own will. I do what I see my Father doing. So you have this. This continue, uh, The father has life in himself, and he's given life to the son. So you see that there is an authority-submission relationship between the father and the son. So what I'm saying is that that is not inherently ontological, but it is functional. Okay? Now, if that's all we said, that would be true enough, but I want to just go one step Farther, and that is, the Son is the sent one for a reason. Okay, in other words, it's not arbitrary. It's not as that if in eternity past the Father could have would have said, "I'll go," and the Son, you you send me. Okay, the Father is always the Father. The Son is always the Son. The Spirit is always the Spirit, and so even though you have essential equality within the Godhead, you also have diversity among the persons in the Godhead. So, by the way, when we say the Father, we are saying something that is not just uh, sort of a, a handy title for us to relate to God. He is the Father same thing with the Son. One of the the points of, of, of Christian orthodoxy is the eternal Sonship of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't become the Son at the incarnation or at the baptism or at the resurrection, okay? Those are all forms of early Christian heresies known as adoptionism. And The fact is, is that the Son has always been the Son. He is the eternal Son of the Father. And what makes Him the eternal Son of the Father is that He is eternally begotten of the Father. He is of one essence. This is why we say this in, in, in our creeds. He is of one substance. He is of one essence with the Father through whom all things were made, right? But He is also very God coming from very God very light proceeding from light, right? So He is begotten, not made. Okay? So the Son is always the Son. So I would, I would suggest to you that even though there is most definitely uh, co-equal, co-eternal, co-existing relationship within the Trinity, it is the most natural thing for, in the Trinity for the son to be the sent one and the father to be the sender. So in other words, the roles aren't arbitrary. Now, how does that relate? Well, I think in in 11.3, the headship of a man over a woman, a husband over his wife, is rooted in the idea of the Trinity, and so here's, here's the other thing that we need to remember and, and really need to be absolutely unmoving on, and that is to say that men and women are ontologically equal. That is, they're equal in personhood, okay? But they are different in roles. And those roles include roles of authority and submission, to affirm that that there are difference in roles does not denigrate or devalue the worth of a woman any more than the son being the sent one in submission to the father denigrates or devalues the the, the worth of the son. The son is not devalued in any way because he's in submission to the father different role. Same thing for men and women. The difference in role does not mean a devaluing of the person. And so the Trinity gives us a reflection of the relationship between the roles of men and women. Equal in person, distinct in role, and this view is called complementarianism. That is Man, as male and female, complete each other. So complementarian with an E, they complete each other in the purpose of God. Okay, Equal in person, different in role, completing each other in roles of authority and submission. That's what the Bible says. Okay? And I don't think that we have to actually be apologetic about it. I saw Al Mohler years ago, so um, the Southern Baptist Convention was going to adopt language um, uh, in their um, statement of faith, uh, Baptist faith and message, that was just reflective of um, uh, the authority of men in the home and the church and submission of women in home and the church. And, uh, Larry and uh, Al Mohler was being interviewed by Larry King, and Larry King said, where in the world did you get this? That's what he said. Well, Al Mohler said, well, from the Apostle Paul. So, now I totally understand that this is not the way that society or culture looks at the roles of men and women anymore, okay? Uh, The fact is, is that it did look at the roles of men and women like that because, because by and large, Western civilization had a Christian worldview, okay? So that's foundational. So, you can't, you can't um, divorce what we're about to say regarding men and women from what Paul says in verse 3, okay? So, so keeping that in mind. So, that brings us to um, verses 4 to 6, and this is where the passage starts to get a little tricky. If it just stopped at verse 3, we'd be okay, and uh, we could move on happily. Um, So we have the whole idea of heads being covered or uncovered while praying and prophesying. So the first question is, is, um, are we just talking about men and women in general or husbands and wives in particular? So some have argued that what Paul does here is uh, he's only referring to uh, married women when he talks about women having their head covered, and um, others just say, no, he's talking about women in general. And uh, that should be clear because of certain things in the text, like that uh, incredibly clear statement on because of the angels, right? Um, now, so I would suggest, and this is, this is in, in line with, with Tom Schreiner's view, and that is as you go through the passage, there's, uh, there's a fluidity that Paul has. Um, uh, Schreiner says sort of a looseness. So that at times, it's very clear that you're talking about a husband and wife. At other times, it's, it's more generic, okay? But there's a reason for that, and that is because Paul's talking about, more broadly, men and women in worship, all right? So he says, every man, while praying or prophesying, if having his head covered, shames his head, okay? So the context is clearly public worship, okay? Um, some people have tried to argue that the praying and prophesying is um, informal meetings and so forth. But if you look at the whole flow of 11 through 14, everything revolves around the public worship uh, that takes place in the church. All right? The very next discussion will be on the observance of the Lord's Supper. The very next discussion will be on the use corporately of spiritual gifts. And so I, I think clearly that what's in view here is praying, or prophesying that is going on in public or corporate worship. Um, And he's talking specifically with a a man with his head covered. Now, literally, the text just says um, a man praying or prophesying while having down upon his head. That's what the text says. It's it's a relatively ambiguous phrase, Um, and so you get all kinds of uh, interesting ideas as to what this phrase means, having down upon his head. But the clue for us is that in the Septuagint, in Esther 6.12, after Haman was made to honor Mordecai, this very phrase is used as he went home, and what did he do? He covered his head. Same phrase, and it's actually clear from the Hebrew text that he covered his head. Okay, so it's like the guy, uh, you know, it's like the um, it's like the CEO that gets arrested and pulls gets pulled out of his office, and he puts his coat over his head um, as the cops are taking him to the car. Right, that's the picture. Okay, so the man praying with something on his head. All right, now <clears throat> what exactly is Paul talking about here? Well. Some people think that, that this really wasn't an issue, that there wasn't uh, a problem with men having their head covered while they were praying. Uh, so it's just sort of hypothetical to set up the argument regarding women. And uh, I, I just, I don't know that that, that, that rings true. Um, it could be a reference to the idea of, of what was common pagan practice of having men having their heads covered. Okay? And so we have a number of, of extra-biblical examples of uh, pagan priests, for instance, conducting worship with their heads covered. Um, it could be a reference to um, uh, a person who goes to pray, and then he takes his toga and pulls it over his head. Okay? Now, that sounds weird because none of us wear togas, but do you know who wore togas? The wealthy. Slaves didn 't wear togas okay, any more than than you know than uh, lower class people who go around in tuxedos okay? just... so the idea could have been that the because remember there is a very, very clear um, socioeconomic clash going on in the Corinthian church between the haves and the have- nots the rich and the poor, and it could be that as the uh, wealthier people went to pray that they uh, in a sense, sort of made an ostentatious display of their status by pulling their toga up over their head. Whether that's true or not, we don't know for sure. Okay? Um, other people point out that, uh, that this could be referenced to a Jewish practice. Of course, if you've ever seen, uh, let's say, rabbis praying, okay? I was on a flight to Israel and I, was, I got stuck in like the rabbi section I'm serious, there was like fifty rabbis and um and they all prayed with their heads covered. The problem is is that it seems that that practice was not necessarily um, present in paul 's day and didn't come along until a little later so So you start to see that all of these different ideas as to what it is with a man praying with his head covered becomes a little fuzzy because we don't know the exact background so Gordon Fee makes the comment, he says, in the final analysis, however, we simply have to admit that we don't know. In any case, whatever it was, Paul's usage, now he argues it was hypothetical. And whatever it meant, he would expect the Corinthians to agree that such a covering for men would bring shame to Christ. Okay? So this is, this is, in a sense, sort of um, uh, one of the challenges of studying the Scripture. The Scripture comes to us in a historical context, in a cultural context, and sometimes we just don't understand enough about the practice to make full sense out of any given text, okay? And that's certainly the case here. So Paul seems to assume that the Corinthians uh, understand that if a man covers his head while he's praying, it's a disgrace to his head. Shames his head. So what does he mean? Shames his head. If Christ is the head of every man, it could be you pray with your head covered, you're, you're bringing shame to Christ. Okay? Could also be his head being a, 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 you know, metaphorical for brings shame upon himself. In fact, you see this as an idiom in the Old Testament, right? So somebody does something and um, and they pay the price for it, okay? They brought that upon their own head, okay? That's the language that's often used. And uh, so it could be Christ, it could be self, it could be actually just both, all right? Now, um, it's hard to know exactly where where our cultural norms come from, but a lot of them come from the Bible. And people that are generally, let's say, a little older, um, see a young man walk into, let's just say, church, and leaves his cap on the whole time. I'm not going to ask for like a, 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 a poll, but I know that that seriously bothers some people, okay? Right? And one of our elders, it bothers a lot, okay? Um, that's sort of, a, there's, a, there's a cultural norm, okay? Now, cultural norms change, okay? So, um. If you show up during the week and drop into my office, I might be wearing um, a hat like Melanie's wearing right now. I might be wearing a camo hunting hat. I may be wearing a Giants hat, or if the A's win tonight, I may be wearing an A's hat, you know. And I'll be sitting there at my desk with a hat on, all right? Now, let me just say that, let's say 40 years ago, it was just impolite for a man to wear a hat inside a building, right? So that's that's kind of faded away, but there's still sort of a strong sense of, you know, if you're coming in to worship, you know, you take your hat off, right? That's the cultural norm, okay? Now, I'm going to make a big deal a little later about how cultural norms change, all right? But Paul seems to say, you know what? It seems fairly obvious to me and to you guys that if a guy is Praying or prophesying, so I I I wasn't going to do this. So I was so glad when all the Weller's and Wetmore showed up with their heads covered, because I was going to come in with a baseball hat on and start teaching. Okay. Okay. Now, how many of you would have thought that was odd? Okay. How many of you would have been bothered by that? Yeah. Less bothered by thinking it was odd, but my my bet is those of you that thought it was odd probably would have been bothered by it too. Like, um, think about this. What if I showed up on a Sunday morning and I was wearing shorts? Some of you wouldn't care. Some of you would think I'd lost my mind. Some of, some of you would think that Ariel lost your mind, <laughs> okay? So you're just there's just things that you just go, ah, you know, what if I showed up... Um, uh, to a, a funeral, just dressed like this, right? I, to me, you know what that would be? It'd be disrespectful, right? There, so, so, so there are cultural norms that are reflective of of respect. There are cultural norms that are now. This is where, of course, generations can clash a little bit, but Paul seems to say, "Hey." Everybody knows that if you're praying or prophesying and you're a man and you're covering your head, that it's a shame to Christ or to yourself or to both, and then he gets to the, um, the real naughty question. If it just stopped there, I'd just say, great, guys, don't wear hats. Uh, but it doesn't. Every woman, while praying or prophesying, this is verse 5, with uncovered head, shames her head, for this is one and the same with being shaved. So, the first thing you've got to deal with is, of course, women praying and prophesying in public worship, All right? Um, so, uh, by the way, Acts chapter 21, verse 9, Philip had seven daughters, and guess what they were? Prophetesses, okay? So, Here's a situation that's going on in the Corinthian church. Now, this is probably the rub of of what Paul's getting at in in terms of the Corinthians, okay? And that is you had women who were praying or prophesying in the public assembly with their head uncovered. Paul says, when you do that, you're shaming your head. Ooh, who's that? Yeah, probably your husband, yeah. Now, then he turns around and he says, for this is one and the same as being shaved. Okay, that's obvious. Okay. Well, let's deal first of all with the idea of women praying and prophesying. Let me just say that there's two, there's basically, well, let me just say there's three, three approaches. And, and the first is that women praying or prophesying Someone like Wayne Grudem, for instance, would argue that the functions of prayer and prophecy were were non-authoritative functions in the apostolic church, so that um, the kind of prophesying that Paul's talking about, the kind of prophesying you see in the book of Acts, didn't have the binding authority, let's say, of the Old Testament prophets. So Grudem would say, and I think that there's some validity to this, that that the parallel to the Old Testament prophets are not New Testament prophets, but New Testament apostles, okay? New Testament apostles spoke the thus saith the Lord with the same level of authority as the Old Testament prophets, okay? So he would see, so Old Testament prophet, New Testament apostle, and then a subcategory of New Testament prophet, and they they did not have the binding authority, let's say, that an apostle had, and there are certain examples of this in the book of Acts. Uh, So some people just look at this and go, okay, praying, prophesying, no big deal because praying, prophesying uh, is a non-authoritative function, and Paul doesn't want a woman to exercise authority over a man or to teach a man, but praying and prophesying is, uh, is neither authoritative nor is it a form of teaching. Prophesying could be a form of uh, spirit-led um, exhortation or testimony or something like that, and they say well, that doesn't fit, okay? The, uh, the other is that this is uh, a moot point except for praying because prophesying is a gift that's no longer um, in existence in the church. So whatever prophesying was in the early church, it no longer exists today, so praying is the only, uh, is the only issue, and there's no prohibition against women praying Unless, of course, you look at 1 Corinthians 14, which we'll look at, uh, 33 and 34, women are to keep silent as the controlling passage for this, all right? Now, Calvin had an interesting view of this. So you see what the, you see what the tension is, right? Do you see what the tension is? Um, Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians 14, 33 and 34, let the women keep silent, as in all the churches. She has questions, she's to ask at home, right? But then here he says they can pray and prophesy. Okay? So that's the problem. So this is what Calvin does. Calvin says, it may be replied that the apostle, by here condemning the one, praying, prophesying your head uncovered, does not commend the other. So by condemning praying with your head uncovered, he's not commending praying. He says, for when he reproves them for prophesying with their head uncovered, he at the same time does not give them permission to prophesy in some other way, but rather delays his condemnation of that vice to another passage, namely chapter 14. So Calvin basically says this. This isn't Calvin's language. This is mine. And that is, Paul's just skinning one cat at a time. And so he's dealing with this here, but he's not going to deal with everything about it, and he's going to wait till later all right? Um, I don't really know that that's, that's all that compelling, all right? So whatever the case, the women are praying and prophesying in the assembly, okay? And it looks like they're doing it with their head uncovered. Now, Paul says, if you do that, you uncover, you shame your head, that is your husband. So then the discussion becomes, what what exactly was it about Uncovered hair. Well, the word itself is used in a couple of Old Testament contexts, Numbers 5, for instance, and the hair let down loose, okay, the hair let down loose was um, a sign that you're available. Now, is that true today? No,, okay. so keep that <laughs> like you know um, so some people think the head uncovered means the hair was let down to flow freely, okay, which was a sign of uh sexual attraction and availability, all right, so what Paul is uh, is saying is that if you have your hair, head uncovered, perhaps hair let loose, you might as well have your head shaved. So, so follow, follow the argument here. It is, a little, it is a little tricky, and that is, it's so clearly shameful not to have your head covered and, in a sense, let your hair down, okay, that you might as well just shave your head. Now, Understand that, that there's been um, older suggestions that don't really have much weight anymore that prostitutes shave their head. There's no evidence in the first century that prostitutes shave their head. Okay. Paul's just saying that no respectable woman shaves her head. No respectable woman shorns what he's going to call later her glory. So if she's going to come into the assembly and pray with her head uncovered, she might as well just cut all of her hair off. Okay. So in, in a sense, it's sort of a hyperbolic argument, right? If she's going to shame herself that way, she might as well shame herself this way. Okay. And so um, Schreiner actually says, no respectable woman would shave her head. Now, what, what, by the way, what is it about a woman that shaves her head? What's the goal? Often. Well, that's true, but don't know that's the intent. Let's say, let's say you see a woman walking through, um, you know, Rayleighs, with her hair cut like mine. Okay, wants to be like a man. To well, so at least look like a man, okay. that's the idea. So Paul's saying, just as sure as having a head uncovered shames your head, th- the fact is, is that if you're going to do that, you might as well just shave your head like a man. And shame your head that way. Okay, that's the implication. All right. So if <laughs> so, you, you have to understand how how absolutely uh, politically incorrect this text is and therefore how politically incorrect I'm about to be, okay? If you're a guy and you're married to a woman that looks like a guy, people are going to go, ugh. Right? Okay, just, just being honest, you know? You see the woman with the crew cut? She's walking. First of all, you don't expect her to be walking with a man, do you? Yeah, so don't worry, it's going to get worse. Verse 6 For if she will not be covered, then let her be shorn. Now, if it is a shame to a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. So so you see what Paul does with this argument. He starts off, if she has her head uncovered, it's a shame to her head, that is to her husband, and so she might as well just shave her head. So if she's not going to be covered, then let her be shorn. Now, if it's a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaved, which is the same as having her head uncovered, just have her cover her head. It's simple, right? The answer is simple. You don't have to shave your head. Just cover it. That's what he's saying. So... The woman that's being considered here in Paul's argument is not wearing the head covering. And what Paul's saying, the the reason, by the way, shorn and shaved works its way into the argument is because Paul's point is, by not wearing the head covering, you're breaking down the male-female distinctions which should be present in worship. By so doing, she's shaming her husband. The women, so the women in the Corinthian assembly who were not adorning themselves properly were showing that they were not properly relating to their husbands or the leadership in the church. So in a sense, the uncovering of the head okay, was really sort of a symbol of usurping authority. By casting off the norms of of, of cultural femininity, does okay, that make sense? Okay, so, so you can imagine. So think back to some of the stuff that we've said about some of the Corinthian women. So here you have this super spiritualized. We're sort of like already angels. We speak with the tongues of angels. We are above marriage. We don't marry. Like you know, we're like the angels. We don't marry or given in marriage, so forth. And so here you have this like this super spiritualized view. That they had, that they were already living, you know, nine feet above the earth and already in the age to come. And so the male female distinction to them was absolutely irrelevant. Okay. Paul's argument in the text is that male female distinctions are not irrelevant and they're not in re- irrelevant in worship. Okay. So, um, In a sense, the rebellion was to cast off the norms that reflected femininity. Now, that brings us to Paul's next argument in verse 7. And this is, in a sense, his argument from creation, verses 7 to 9. A man ought not to cover the head being the image and glory of God, and the woman is the glory of the man. Now, what Paul's going to do here, and this is is important to understand, and uh, this is the way Schreiner puts it, he says, we see again cultural practice has a theological foundation. So Paul starts off with man is the image and glory of God. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from Genesis 1, 26 to 28, but is not woman also the image and glory of God? The answer is, of course she is. Both men and women are image bearers. Both men and women reflect the glory of God. But Paul's point here is different. Paul's point here is not to underscore equality of person, but in a sense, a hierarchy in creation purpose. Okay? So... When he says man is the image and glory of God, he's saying God creates... So think of the order. God creates Adam, and God creates Adam, invests in Adam, his image. Adam becomes a living soul, and Adam is now made for the glory of God. That is, Adam was created to honor God. Then Paul says, and woman was made to honor man. Now, that doesn't mean that she doesn't honor God, but it does mean that the woman's role is to honor the man, and that's the way in which she honors God. So, she is, so so remember this, we we do this every wedding, right? So, it is not good for man to be alone, Genesis 2.18. I will make a helper corresponding to him. I've told you, I told you before that, that the, the wording there is, is vital. So, a helper, that is an Azer, and then konegdo, that is uh, one who corresponds to him. So, a helper who corresponds. So, there's the idea of equality, but also difference. Okay? By the way, it's not denigrating to say that the woman was made to be man's helper because there are plenty of places in the Scripture where God says, he's our help, and he's our helper. And so it's not a denigrating thing. And and for some reason, our society, our culture cannot get over the fact that the minute that you say that there's a... um, that there is a, a complementarian relationship between men and women, and women were created for a different purpose than men, all of a sudden everybody loses their mind. But the fact is, is that if if you're a man or a woman, you don't find the ultimate fulfillment that God has for you until you find the fulfillment of what he's made you to be. That doesn't mean everybody's a wife and a mother, Okay? But it does mean that the that the purpose for the woman and the purpose for the man are two different purposes. In one sense, there's one grand purpose that they both share. In another, in, in, in a in a sort of a substratus sense, there's a different set of purposes. Okay? And so Paul is just simply saying man was made for God's glory, that is to glorify God, to honor God. Woman was made to honor the man. You go. You could, you could almost, and that's the way in which she serves the Lord and honors the Lord. And then Paul turns around in verse eight says this great statement: "For man did not come from woman, but woman from man." What in the world is he talking about? He's talking about God putting Adam into a deep sleep and taking from one uh, Adam's ribs and fashioning it into woman. And so Adam is Ish, woman is Ishah, just a feminine form of Ish. Ish and isha, and isha comes from ish, and that's just the way it is. Luther used to refer to his wife, Katie, as my rib. It's actually sort of a wonderful thing, right? And, of course, at every wedding, you know what else I do? I read the quote from Matthew Henry that woman was not made from the head of man to be over him or from the foot of man to be trampled upon by him, but under his arm, from his rib, to be near to him, to be loved by him, to be protected by him, so forth, right? So the picture is, of course, Paul's appealing to Genesis 2. Then he says, for the man, for also the man was not created for woman, but woman for man. And so all he's doing is he is appealing to what is Abundantly clear in Genesis chapter 2. Now, for people that want to say everything that Paul's talking about here head coverings, um, man's the head of woman all of that's just cultural, that's not our culture anymore. Let Let me just point out that Paul's basis for the argument is not a cultural argument. The basis for Paul's argument is creation. And by the way, creation before the fall. It's pretty common among evangelical feminists. It sounds like an oxymoron to me. But they they say that the whole idea of headship and submission is is a part of the curse. And that's not true. It's not true. God, God embedded it into the creation order before the fall. So... Clearly, this isn't popular today. Years and years ago, my dad had a friend that he worked with at UPS for, I don't know how long, 35 years, something like that. And uh, the guy's name was Dean, and he and his wife were coming up on their 50th anniversary. And, and um, Dean called me and said, hey, or my dad said, hey, Dean and Joanna want to redo their wedding vows. They're coming up on 50, and, and I said, well, they wouldn't like the vows. My dad, said, my dad said, well, just just go ahead and call them, you know. So I called them, and I said, hey, Dean, how are you doing? Good. Yeah, Joanna and I want to exchange vows again, renew our vows on our 50th. I said, well, you know, I'm not really big on renewing vows, you know, unless, like, you just say, well, we didn't mean it the first time. And... Um, he goes, well, we'd really like to do it. I said, okay. I said, but you have to understand that um, my view of vows is rooted in in Scripture. Well, what do you mean? Well, I ask, I'll ask Joanna if um, she's willing to submit to you. He starts laughing. He says, you can't say that. Not only will everybody die laughing, but she'll die laughing. Well, that's... That's just our culture, right? It's just our culture. It's this, it's this egalitarianism that hates the idea of authority and submission and does everything it can. By the way, this is not just um, in, in the realm of male and female. What, what starts to happen is when you begin to a, a erode and attack God's authority submission structures okay, in society, you know what you get? You get um, "I hate cops." Okay. You get "I hate the president." I hate anybody in authority. Okay. That—that's, by the way, that's just rebellion against God's created order. Okay. Just rebellion. And um, God's established that order. Romans chapter thirteen. So, Paul goes on and he says, um, now here's, here's another reason why you need to do this, verse 10. Therefore, a woman ought to have, notice NAS has a symbol of, notice it's in italics, all right? So, it's just, she ought to have authority on her head. <laughs> and Then you have this, this marvelous statement, because of the angels. All right, so... So because, of, uh, because this woman ought to have a symbol of authority, so that's what the New American Standard says. So some people say, forget the idea of symbol. She's to have her head covered, and the head covering is a symbol of her, her authority to pray and prophesy. Okay? I don't think that's what Paul's getting at at all. Um, Gordon Fee says the, the authority on her head, so the head covering is the sign of the freedom of the woman over her own head, right? But then he turns around and he says, but what that means in context remains a mystery. So that's not very helpful. Uh, Another commentator follows a similar line of thought. He says, wearing the head covering represents the woman's control over her own head, by which she then demonstrates her faithfulness to her husband. I actually just think that what the NAS does here is helpful and, and is probably the best route, and that is the head covering is a symbol of authority on her head, which means that it's a symbol of her husband's authority and her submission. Okay? Now, some argue, well, that would make wearing authority then be a passive sense because you're not saying it's, uh, it's a symbol of uh, actually authority. It's a sub- symbol of submission. Well, not if you keep in mind that what she's doing is in constant relationship to her husband. Okay? So I really do think that the, that the NAS ends up having um, the best. So the idea is the head covering is a sign of her husband's authority and her submission. And then, then he says this, and, and she needs to do that because of the angels. Now... Um, one commentator says modern readers are left in the dark here, and none of the many explanations is without problems. Okay? So, how many of you ever puzzled over because of the angels? Okay, yeah. So, those of you that have read it have puzzled over it. Um, so, here are some of the um, here are some of the samples of ideas. So, because of the angels, so the term angeloi is just the idea of messengers, and so. One view is women ought to wear head coverings in Corinth because of visiting messengers to the church because they're going to look at you and go, why aren't your heads covered? Okay. That seems like a stretch. Um, but a, a bigger stretch would be so that um, you cover your head so the angels don't lust after you. Okay. You know that that is rooted... In one of the most common rabbinic interpretations of Genesis chapter six, sons of God and the daughters of men. Very common rabbinic view was that the sons of God was a reference to the fallen angels who cohabitated with the daughters of men. Okay? So we laugh at it, but and, and and I don't I don't buy that interpretation of Genesis six, but. The appeal is, cover your hair so that the angels don't go, wow, you know. <laughs> um, another view is uh, cover your head because of the angels is the idea is because of the example of the angels. Isaiah six two. Now, they didn't cover their head, though, did they? They covered their, their faces, <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, uh, angels, another view, angels are the guardians of the order of creation, wearing a head covering, respects them in their role as guardian the order of creation. Um, this la- the la- one more here, uh, angels are participants and unseen observers in the church's worship. Do we have any other text that may indicate that that's true? in Ephesians 3:10. Okay. Angels are looking at the manifold wisdom of God in the church. Okay. And by the way, 1 Peter 1:10 to 12, angels actually long to understand and look into things pertaining to salvation. So the fact that there are angelic observers and maybe even participants in the church's worship should not actually Surprise us, okay? And so, you know, don't get, uh, don't get too freaked out about it, but just think, you know, here we are. We're singing and we're, we're praising the Lord and unseen to us, are angelic observers. And what we do is important. Okay? Now, as far as head coverings go, women wearing the head coverings is a sign of modesty and a sign of order, and so the higher audience, this is the way the argument goes, the higher audience requires decorum and the absence of flaunting of self and one's beauty. So, so you understand, no, no um, explanation. You go, oh, that one's it, right? Because it's just strange. So Paul says, because of the angels. Then he goes back to creation, verses 11 and 12, and, and he says this. So, so, by the way, what Paul wants to do in 11 and 12, I think, is he wants the, the, the church to avoid misunderstanding. And the text just literally reads like this, In the Lord neither is woman without man nor man without woman. Okay. Now, the way the NAS does that is uh, woman is, neither is woman independent of man nor is man independent of woman. And then Paul gives, in a sense, sort of the, the uh, rounding out. For the woman originates from the man, so that's reference to... Adam and Eve and so also the man through the woman everybody since okay so so what Paul's saying is there's in a sense there's sort of a parity of origins woman first has her origin from man Genesis 2 and ever since every man's come through a woman okay that's simple and so ultimately all things originate in whom God himself. And so, again, what Paul's doing is he's, um, by the way, if, if, I think if he doesn't make this argument at the end, then there is probably too much of a tendency to assert somehow the authority and maybe even to misunderstand that to be superiority of the men, okay? So mutuality of origins, okay? Man, woman comes from Man. Every man's come from a woman ever since. And all of us come from God. The idea is, is we're all equal in the sight of God. We all come from God himself. God's created, in a sense, a a world in which there is unity and diversity. Then in verse uh, 13, I was really hoping we could get here tonight. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Paul's going to now argue from propriety and from nature, all right? By the way, he says in uh, 10.15, you judge what I say, okay? That's kind of what he says here, right? You judge for yourselves. So do you think what Paul means is something like this? All right, Corinthians, I've laid it out. You make up your mind as to what the right thing is. No. No. This is not, you, now you get to decide what's true. This is something like this. When he says, you judge what I say, it's more like this. Use your head. You, use common sense, right? Just judge what I say. Put, put your brain back inside your noggin and just use some common sense. And then he asks the question, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? And there, the, in, in a sense, now, re, this is so helpful to remember this in this passage, theology and culture intertwine. The theology is the, is the background, the foundation for the cultural practice, so When he says, you judge it for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? There was an assumed impropriety in the first century for that to be true, for that to happen. Now, is the theology behind that true today? Even though the cultural expression may be different. Yeah, so, so this, is, this is actually a very important thing for us to understand. So if I were to say to you, um, don't you think it's improper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? Everybody except the Wellers and Wetmores would say, no. By the way, I think the, 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 the object lessons for tonight are just fantastic, okay? Okay. Um, so that's not how we would conclude that, right? Okay. Um, but could you ask other questions and not say, is it not improper for X, Y, Z? And we would go, well, yeah. Yeah. Right? So... Remember, you've got the theology that's the foundation. You've got the cultural practice that grows out of the theology. The cultural practice may, may vary, but the theology remains the same. Okay? By the way, for those of you that are struggling with the concept, um, greet one another with a holy kiss. Is that something that we do? Did I kiss anybody here tonight? Am I violating Scripture? Did I greet some of you? Shake some of your hands? Maybe pat you on the shoulder? Okay, Right? Greet one another with a holy kiss. That's fairly culture-bound, don't you think? Okay. Now, if you're Italian, you just go for it. But I'm going to tell you what, if you're a man and you're not Italian, maybe even if you are Italian, and you're going around greeting everybody with a holy kiss, the elders are going to talk to you. Okay? So so last week uh, we, we talked about women um, uh, elders and preachers and so forth, and somebody said to me afterwards, she goes, you know, before I I really, really understood the scriptures and what the scriptures taught about women and leadership and all of that, she said, even when I would be in churches where there were women preachers, I just kind of felt like there was just something not right about it, you know? I think that's the kind of thing that Paul's appealing to here. He's just saying, you know that there's just something that's just not right about it, okay? Now, that's not where he leaves it. He turns around. And he says this, and this is where we can get into a a, a little more trouble for ourselves. Does not nature teach if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? Doesn't nature teach this? Now, I know some of you were hippies. I heard, I want to see pictures, but I heard Pastor Charlie used to have really long hair. Isn't that true, Phil? Do you, do you remember Charlie in the days of long hair? Okay, beard, all right. Well, Charlie had long hair. Lots of uh, lots of guys had long hair back in the day, right? Yeah. So. Whoa, I want to see pictures next week, all right. Okay. Now, <clears throat> what do you think Paul means, doesn't nature itself teach? Well, Here's, here's the idea. Um, this same word, "fusis," is used in Romans: 126, where Paul's describing women with women, which is against nature. Okay. In other words, homosexuality is contrary to nature. Okay. In other words, there's a, there's a witness that nature has. And, and here's what it is, that men should be men and women should be women. And men shouldn't try to look like women. And women shouldn't try to look like men. Okay? But Let me just say this as, as clearly as I know how. When you're in a culture where men are trying intentionally to look effeminate, that's rebellion against God. And when you live in a culture where you have women who are intentionally trying to look masculine, it is rebellion against God. It is against nature. Nature testifies to man as male and female. And so, again, you have creation and culture. So Tom Schreiner says, nature teaches then in the sense that the natural instincts and psychological perceptions of masculinity and femininity are manifested in particular cultural situations. So there's a a sense where, so let's just just take hair length for for a moment because that seems to be what Paul's talking about. I would say Paul's talking about something more specific than hair length, okay? and that is long hair, i.e., like a woman. Okay, So if you were a Roman gladiator, okay, and you had long hair, it's not because you were trying to be effeminate, Okay, especially when you just 12 minutes before had just chop somebody's head off. It's a rather masculine thing to do. Okay. Um, the length of hair for a woman is, is not necessarily an issue either because there can be very feminine-looking cuts that are shorter. Okay. The issue is men trying to look like women and women trying to look like men. Paul says, nature itself teaches us that that's not the way it ought to be. So we were in Berkeley. You know where this is going. Went into a bookstore. I'll go into any bookstore. And go over to the kids section and they have these heroes' books, okay, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, etc. Well, they have one on Fidel Castro. Okay. So I take the book. I felt like just taking the whole stack of them and just throwing them in the trash. And I take the book, and I'm looking around for somebody that works there. And a guy comes over to me, and this is no joke. He had long hair in a ponytail, and he's wearing a skirt. So I gave him a 10-minute history lesson on why Fidel Castro is an evil villain and not a hero. And I felt like giving him a lesson from 1 Corinthians 11 too, but I thought just one lesson at a time might be good. But... He was obviously a man because he had whiskers. I mean, I'd have bet, you know, 10 to 1 that he was a man. And you leave and you think, first of all, what a poor soul. What a poor soul, right? We live in a, in a society that's absolutely confused Because God has judged our sin with more sin. That's Romans 1, by the way. And so I want you to understand that on the one hand, nature says, what you're doing, the way you're making yourself look, that's against nature. And we need to understand that's rebellion against God. this rebellion against God's created order. But then we also need to realize that is a poor soul that is incredibly confused, that desperately needs Christ. So Paul then turns around and he says, I do this quickly. If a woman has long hair, is it a glory to her? And the answer is yes. So if a man has long hair, it is dishonor to him. If a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. In other words, when, when the woman actually looks like a woman, she is reflecting what God made her to be, and it's beautiful. Just as sure as long hair is a disgrace to a man shaved head is a disgrace to a woman because there's a confusion of the genders. But when a man looks like a man and a woman looks like a woman, when the woman looks like the woman, it's a glory to her. Now, he does say her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, this end of this passage has caused a lot of um, confusion because there are quite a few people that are more than willing to take that one passage, her hair is given as a covering, and then turn around and read everything that went before in terms of, okay, well, it's just her hair that's the head covering. Well, that can't be, actually. Okay? That can't be. Paul does not say here that she was given her hair in the place of a covering. Okay? I think... This is the best that I can do. Um, Garland, nature has given women hair as a glorious natural cover. Therefore, women should follow the lead of nature as defined by social decorum and cover their heads. So in other words, the, the woman's hair is a covering. It is her glory, but that doesn't negate what Paul has said in terms of signs of submission and authority and so forth, all right? Verse 16, we should preach on this a lot longer. Uh, If one is inclined to be contentious, which I know none of you would ever be, so we won't spend too much time on this. By the way, the word contentious is, uh, if if any of you want to be a strife lover, a lover of strife, quarrelsome, Paul says, we have no other practice, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. In other words, um, what I'm telling you is the apostolic practice. What I'm telling you is the Christian church practice. So if you want to be contentious and be out of step with what I'm saying, then you have to realize you're out of step with everyone. Okay. All right, so let me do this in just as, as quickly as possible. How do we apply this passage? Well, first of all, broadly, okay? There are some clear, broad principles, Uh, Unity of person, diversity in roles, Bible clearly teaches, complementary roles in home and the church. And even though our culture despises this, we have to be firm on it, okay? Which means that um, that's reflected in our homes, it's reflected in our church, and it's reflected in the way that we parent. Raise your little boys to be little boys and your little girls to be little girls, Second application, I think that what Paul is, so I I looked at the four four different views of head coverings last week, not going to repeat that, but I think that the principle is that gender distinction should be noticeable in our gatherings and in our worship, okay? Gender distinction should be noticeable in our gatherings and our worship, okay? So, it's a good thing there's just a few of you here tonight because this is always, this, I'll tell you what, saying what I'm about to say has gotten me in more trouble than preaching on election or tithing. And that is, Christian women ought to be committed to modesty. 1 Peter 3, 1 Timothy 2, modesty, although cultural norms do Change modesty is a clear scriptural teaching. Okay. I think that um, immodesty really fits into maybe even the broader category of of usurping gender roles okay. because immodesty is provocative, it is um, lascivious, that is, it's designed to cause other people to look, to lust. And the Bible is, is very clear that, that women ought to be um, adorned modestly. Okay? Now, what that means is not that you wear gunny sack, or that you find the baggiest pair of Carhartt overalls. God created women to be beautiful and to adorn themselves in a way that doesn't draw undue attention to themselves or doesn't cause people to look at them in a way that is inappropriate. But God created women to be beautiful and to be women and to, in a sense, exhibit... The femininity that God has graced you with is a blessing. So gender distinctions are important. Um, women should avoid looking like men. Men should avoid looking like women. We've, uh, we've touched on that. But understand also that there are cultural expressions of this that, that are in flux. So I mentioned guys wearing a hat into a building and how that's kind of changed a little bit. Um 40 50 years ago uh you wouldn't see women wearing pants right okay in fact that was that was just positively wicked okay don't we don't really look at it that way anymore okay um so we don't go oh she's wearing pants she must be a, a raging feminazi okay we don't think like that okay but we still know a fundamental distinction between a person that's dressed in a feminine way and someone that's not. Okay? And so we we need to think about these things because there are, on the one hand, um, cultural norms that that shift and we want to be sensitive. So, in other words, we don't want to be the kind of people that are judging other people because they're not doing it exactly like we do it, okay, but we also have to understand that there are also cultural norms and trends that, that, that really do sort of undermine the fundamental distinction between men and women. Okay? So that's, that's sort of the tension that the church has. So if head coverings don't communicate in the 21st century what they communicated in the first century. And the question is, well, what does? So that, that's, that, that is, in a sense, the, the obligation that we have when we think about this text. Okay? Because I, I think that just to say, well, the text says head coverings, so head coverings, I think, is in a sense, misses the, the distinction between the theological foundation and the cultural expression. So if the cultural expression doesn't communicate the theological truth anymore, then you look for what is an equivalent cultural expression that helps us express the theological truth. Okay. So go back to your holy kiss. Okay, I'm not going to kiss you, but I'll shake your hand or I'll hug you. Is a handshake or a hug a cultural equivalent of the holy kiss? Sure. Okay. So we've got to think about that. And... By the way, most of the time when women wear head coverings, except for the ones here tonight, obviously, um, <laughs> a, a lot of times, you know, just wearing a hat, for instance, doesn't com- communicate what Paul's at after here. Okay? So how do we do that? Well, I just, just want to give just a few things and suggestions. Intentionally feminine. Intentionally feminine. Modest. Is it possible to wear a dress and have it be immodest? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, I actually have a pet peeve at weddings, and that is, I think, immodest wedding dresses are just contrary to the spirit of what a white wedding gown is supposed to convey. Okay? So, I'm not saying dresses are the answer, all right? But I am saying distinctly feminine. Okay? And that's not to say you know women can't wear jeans or I mean, that's not what i'm saying i'm saying let women look like women and men look like men and when we do that i think that reflects what paul is getting at at least in a broad sense in this text okay all right well make sure you go home and share it with all your coworkers tomorrow let's pray Lord, thank you for this text. We thank you for how difficult and challenging it has been. And we pray that you'd help us, give us wisdom to know how to apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at GraceNevada.com. That's GraceNevada.com.